Hello and welcome to this Media Voices Conversations episode in partnership with publishing platform PugPig. Toward the end of 2020, the PugPig team launched their first annual State of the Digital Publishing Market Report. And I'm joined by PugPig co-founder Johnny Calder to talk about what's been happening in the world of digital publishing and what we can expect in 2021. Welcome Johnny, how are you? Hi Peter, I'm good, thank you. Raring to go. Excellent. Start of a new year. Yes, yeah. <laughs> what a great start, eh? Yeah, definitely. We're obviously recording this lockdown, so we're remote, but we'll do a good job. PugPig doesn't do reports, PugPig does publishing platforms, so why have you done this? Why have you done a report? Yeah, it's something we've wanted to do for a while, actually. Um, you know, we've got over 300 brands on the product on the platform and uh there's all this data kind of flying around washing around and uh for a long time we just wanted to to actually t take a step back and get a sense of what's going on because we so rarely do you know we're, we're constantly head down working specifically with you know a number of clients on very specific things but uh it was a good opportunity just to take a step back um and just start to try and pull out some trends so we actually we did two different things we we looked at the data, the raw data that we've got, obviously in aggregate, so we're not kind of giving away any trade secrets there. Yeah. Um, but then we also conducted a set of face-to-face, -face, or at least as face-to-face -face as we could be given the lockdown, but interviews with about 40 people, um, most of whom were customers of ours, publishers that we work with, to get more subjective views of what's going on. So yeah. that's that was the idea of the report, and that's what we want to continue is a mixture of kind of data-driven um, insights as well as actually talking to people and getting a proper sense from them, you know, what, what are they thinking about right now. So what does that list of clients look like? What kind of publishers have you got on that list? Yeah, well, okay, so, so if you think of our, our customer base, we split quite cleanly actually between uh, news media, consumer media, and then kind of more specialist media and membership organizations. And it's almost a third, a third, a third. Yep. So we wanted to uh, kind of split our conversations in a similar sort of way. So we were talking to um, Dow Jones, DMG Media, Dennis, Condé Nast, um, then smaller publishers like Motorsport Magazine, New yep. Scientist, New Statesman, um, News UK, Reach, a really good kind of cross-section of you know, big national dailies, uh, news media, kind of regional news media, um, and then weekly media. So we also talk, uh, spoke to The Economist, of course, who we've worked with for many years, and then uh, the kind of monthly consumer media. So it's quite a nice cross-section. And that's why in the report, particularly for the subjective stuff, we, we, we split all of the responses into news media and consumer media because, as you might expect, they have slightly different views on what's going on. So if you take a helicopter view, um, just so, you know, as a sort of starting off point, how's digital publishing doing? Uh, last year was quite a year. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting one. I mean, we so we kind of split in two in two dimensions, I suppose. We we split between news media and consumer media, obviously. Uh, and then we tend to look at things between the dailies, the weeklies, and the monthlies. They, they you tend to get interesting trends across those those two dimensions. So I think what we're seeing is is pretty positive. I have to say, yeah. I think in in the dailies, which of course are all 
news media, we're seeing, and, and I guess we look at things from subscriber numbers and, and, you know, average monthly users, that sort of stuff. Because if you think about our platform, traditionally, we are more of an app centric platform. I mean, we, you know, we, we power websites and, uh, and mobile apps, but, uh, you know, the broad base of our customers are apps and, and apps have very specific uh, characteristics. And one thing that apps are really good at is kind of, you know, the more loyal, engaged, paying audience as opposed to websites and and social, which is obviously going for scale. Um, and so everything that we talk about in this report comes from that lens. Mm. So I think from that perspective, things are looking good. In other words, we're seeing increases in readership and engagement pretty much across the board, actually, the dailies, the weeklies, and the monthlies. I think I think the weeklies have always been these kind of powerhouses of digital publishing. It's... it's um, it's interesting how, you know, when you look at people like The Economist and uh, The Week and The Spectator and those those kind of weekly journals, over the last 10 years, they've just, they've always seemed to have done well in digital. Um, I think with the dailies, again, we're seeing really good growth. You'll see on the report, actually, and we've, we've stuck some, some updated numbers on LinkedIn recently, there was definitely a COVID bump mm -hmm. in terms of engagement and readership. Uh, for the dailies in particular. Yeah. And then I think the monthlies is, is, is interesting because I guess consumer publishing has been attacked on all sides, hasn't it? You know, not not just from a, from a technology standpoint, but also, you know, the fact that the content for the mass consumer media is harder to defend. So I think what we found with the consumer titles is the niche titles again doing really well people like motorsport you know have done really well in digital i think the bigger publishers have found it more challenging but this was an interesting year for the for the consumer publishers because i think subscriber revenue finally got the priority that it's probably yeah. been wanting for some years and and so we've seen some really interesting things in consumer publishing it's not quite there yet it's not as at least in again in our little world not quite as mature as the dailies and the weeklies but it's it's definitely getting there why do you think there's this difference you know if a daily's got a certain level of engagement or a weekly's got i guess the weeklies have got the highest engagement and monthly the lowest why does the timing of that content make such a difference yeah, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if it's a timing thing or or if it's the nature of the content. No, I think and again I think I wonder if part of this, because you're right, instinctively, you would have thought, and you're referring to, to some of the figures that we, we published, which was that actually, while, so that we looked at two different things. We looked at number of visits per month, and then we looked at the length of those visits per month. And, and what we found was the number of visits per month roughly fits with what you would instinctively think, right? Which is that the weeklies have five or six visits a month and the monthlies are getting about three or four which instinctively feels right you know mm. you would go more regularly to a daily news yeah, app absolutely. however the session duration is following the same pattern in other words the daily news media are getting longer session durations than weekly and the weekly news media are getting longer session durations than monthly so that feels counterintuitive i think there's a couple of things going on there i think first of all i think with the daily news media i guess when you actually think about it there's a hell of a lot of content in a daily news title more more content than in a weekly right i mean of course it's it's less future led uh, feature led uh, but there's a hell of a lot to consume there and so particularly with the daily editions we see very long session durations 
The reason why the monthly is so low, I think is again down to product maturity. I think for us at least, historically, a good chunk of the monthly consumer media who were on our platform were just kicking out fairly, mm. I have to say, basic PDF replicas, particularly in the UK. It's in the last year that actually, along with that increased prioritization of subscriber revenue, they've come back and they're starting to put much more effort into their apps. And so we're now delivering proper native apps on phone and tablet that can actually be read, you know, so it's proper content. So I think we're seeing, we're seeing the monthly consumer media improve for sure. Um, and the other thing we're seeing in monthly in the monthlies is particularly with Condé Nast at the moment, we've been doing some really cool tests with GQ in France with a new app, um, which has moved away from the digital edition and gone to something much more like a live a live content app. It's still the same content. It's just delivered as a different user experience. Mm-hmm. And the numbers have shot up. So mm-hmm. the engagement and the subscriber numbers since, you know, a earlier on in the year when in France in particular it was just a PDF replica to now this proper fully featured live app you know they've more than tripled the readership so it's a really good signs I think in 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 the monthlies but but they are definitely I would say less mature products than the dailies and the weeklies. The conversation around editions versus live apps is it's been yeah. going on as long as there's been any kind of digital publishing yes um is is one winning out over the other? I don't think so. What what's interesting is the the it's it's a very subtle difference between the two. I mean, the independent is a great example. You know, the independent we have a daily edition and we have the independent premium, and the the overlap in content is enormous. Mm. And actually, all it really comes down to, and the publishing cadence is pretty similar. I mean, the daily edition obviously is updated once a day, and premium is updated more regularly, but but ultimately, it's just down to a different user experience. You know, some readers like the idea of a finite yeah. piece of content that has a beginning and an end, and they can go from start to finish, and they have a sense of completion. Um, and some and some readers like like the idea of dipping in and out and and kind of browsing through you know different timelines and different sections. Ultimately, the content product is the same the user experience is different so what what we're seeing now is a blurring of the lines so we as you as you know have two kind of mobile products we've got something called publish which is predominantly edition based but it kind of does live news and we've got bolt which is predominantly live content but it kind of does editions um, so our big project for the year actually is to unify those two platforms and just have mm one platform and then it's down to the publisher you know they can they can lead with editions and have live content they can leave with live con- live content and have editions or um they can just pick one or the other is there a is there a sort of decision making process that you recognize with the publishers there you know the guys that decide oh, i'm going to go i'm leading with editions or other people that will lead with live yeah there is and i and <laughs> I mean, the reason we want to unify the platform is also is almost just make it such that it doesn't need to be a decision. Um, I, I think with with some, it's very clear. Well, I say that actually. I mean, I was going to pick the Economist as a very clear one, but funnily enough, they're a good example of where it's not clear. So, with the Economist, they absolutely see huge value in in the edition. 
because it's a it's a ritual you know on yeah. every friday when when they publish a new edition everybody from bill gates to you know a million other people get their weekly fix of the economists in order to be educated and informed and that and that's not a print thing it's absolutely not a print thing it's 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 a it's a ritual which I've, at least from where i'm sitting will continue forever but on top of that the economists also know that they have an audience which wanted to want to consume content in a different way and so where the economists are is they have well they have a whole bunch of apps but they have two key apps right now they have our digital edition app which is just a pure digital edition and then they have their kind of the swiss army knife app which does everything mm. so for someone like the economist i think their their decision making is look we want one place where people can get everything they need but we want to be able to cater for the different reading habits of our of our audience so yes i think it's it's i think for some titles it's a very clear decision it's very simple um i think for other titles they're still trying to work it out i mean the gq project is a really good example of that so this is the first time um that i know at least uh, in condé nast international this is the first time that the primary app is not centered around an edition it's mm. centered around content which and, and here's the thing the content doesn't you can still deliver content into a kind of non-edition based app at periodical intervals mm. you know so you can you know so for example with with the mail it this it, it it's live so i can talk about this but they're not heavily marketing yet but we launched the mail plus um just before christmas it's in the app store and that it's a daily mail product it doesn't look like an edition but it's updated three times a day so there's the morning edition there's the noon edition there's the 5 p.m. edition so so this is what i mean by the kind of the lines are blurring you 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 could argue it's an edition because it has very specific publishing a very specific publishing cadence but it just doesn't look like an edition and that's the thing that i think we're going to see evolving over the next you know year or so I can see where that works for a newspaper organisation or even someone like the Economist. They've got this constant flow of content going on. Yeah. But how if you're someone like Motorsport, very specialist, probably a fairly small editorial team. Yeah. How do you get into that? You know, how how do you deal with that sort of editions which you've already got because of print? Yeah. Versus live. Yeah. It's funny enough I think the, the motorsport is a really good example of that in this model because they have they have the edition the monthly edition um you know which has a lot of feature led in-depth journalism but also if you think about motorsport it's it's a it's a world which has a weekly cadence because every weekend yeah. there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Um and and so and and so there is a degree of kind of there's a, there's a there's a, a separate if you like journalistic thread that goes on alongside the monthly magazine which is around the sport itself which used to exist on the website only but now exists in the app as well and and actually what it does is it allows it allows the brand to engage with the reader more regularly so you know they went from an app which once a month something happened and so you get this kind of peak of engagement once a month when the new editions available to now something that's constantly updated it's a, it's a you know it's a workflow that was already existing anyway for the website because they did have content kind of ticking over in the website and that's just yeah. simply taking that website content bringing it into the app so then as a as a you know someone who who cares about 
motorsport, who cares about the brand, it's a you know, it's the natural place to go on a Monday morning because you can get your fill of what's been going on over the weekend. So I think, funnily enough, motorsport is almost the perfect example of that mixed model. I think when you when you look at the fashion and beauty um, titles, I think it's harder because there's almost no news element, mm-hmm. uh, particularly to, you know, to a mass market consumer reader at least. So that's when it gets harder. And that's why I think this GQ test is so interesting. You know, we're going to find out over the coming months um, how well that goes. And if that goes well, my, my hope is that, you know, um, publishers like Condé Nast will will do more, put more effort into these these apps or these products which are updating more regularly. And I think the reason the reason they haven't done these things up until now is I think mainly an investment thing, right? So we yeah. found particularly in in up to a couple of years ago the willingness of publishers to invest more than the editorial effort that goes into the the traditional print product was quite limited. And so you end up with this digital product, which is nothing more than a byproduct of a print workflow. And you, can, you can't possibly expect that to do well if, you, if all you're doing is just throwing out mm-hmm. some byproduct. And I think it is in the last kind of 18 months where we're really seeing much more effort being put into these products. And, and it seems to, be, seems to be working. That's about using it as a distribution channel rather than considering the user experience, isn't it? Yeah. So- you know, it's just here's another platform that we're going to push stuff out on, and uh, well, we 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 know how that's worked in the past. Yeah, yeah. It can't be led by the platform; it has to be read by uh, led by the the users. Yeah, it does, and, and but also it just it needs to be. You know, if you're if you're delivering, I think Dennis were fantastic at this, and in in the early days, in particular, of you know you got to you got to start with. Of course, you, you start with the content from one perspective, but you've got to start with the user and this mm. device that they've got in their hands and where are they and why is the device in their hands and what's their intent and what are they trying to achieve? And you deliver a product which matches that rather than, oh, yeah, we've got all this content left over from a print workflow. We might as well just throw it at the phone and see what happens, which is what I think a lot of publishers did, which is why apps got a bad rap, you know, kind of four or five years ago because mm. people just did half-hearted attempts at creating products, but now they really are putting a lot of effort into it and it's it works. In terms of devices, I, mean, I think that's interesting because I would imagine it's it's moved more towards a phone, but you're still seeing tablet usage. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting too, isn't it? I think, again, if, if you look at it through these different dimensions, um, there are different stories there. So if you, if you kind of, so the context is that 80% of mobile is phones, 20% is tablets. So that's kind of that, that's the backdrop. So depending on the content and depending on the type of app, you get a different um, balance of usage between tablets and phones. So the, 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 the so-called live apps, the Bolt apps, like um, Independent Premium and Mail Plus and um, this GQ app, for example, where they, they're about 83% phone and about right. 17% tablet. So that matches, if you like, the, the broader context. That's also partly because they are specifically designed for phone. I mean, they'll work on the tablet, but they're not really designed for tablet, you know, in the same way yeah. that Instagram doesn't really work on a tablet. You can download the phone app onto the tablet. So, um, so that kind of, I guess, 
is in line with what you would instinctively think. Then when you look at edition-based apps, you get a much bigger tablet usage. So we're seeing about 54% phone, 46% tablet across our digital edition apps. Mm -hmm. And that's across everything. So news media, um, consumer magazines, and, and weekly media. That's a little bit more surprising. So, so that, to me, potentially suggests there's an audience out there that's not being properly exploited. Um, in other words, there should be more phone people reading those edition apps. You could partially argue that some of the edition apps, so for example, The Week, um, skew slightly older. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that the penetration of tablets is higher amongst the kind of older people. So, so that could represent part of it. And I think another part of it could just simply be the content. In other words, you know, the monthlies tend to be more visual content, which tends to lend itself more to, to tablets. So you could, so actually when we look across daily, weekly, monthly, they go increasingly towards tablets. In other words, so tablet okay. usage for monthly is higher than tablet usage for weekly, which is higher than tablet usage for daily, which again, I think would probably follow what you might imagine. Mm -hmm. The kind of spanner in the works, which I, I really didn't think this would be the case until we looked at the numbers is the, and it sounds kind of nuanced, but it's interesting from a product design standpoint, is that with the tablet usage, it's almost it's almost a perfect 50-50 between portrait usage and landscape usage, which to me seems odd, right? Because how, how many print media are landscape, apart from coffee table art books, right? Who's reading content in a landscape view? You know, the columns yeah. are too wide. It doesn't make sense. And I think a good chunk of that is because lots of tablet users have these kind of, you know, they have the case which has a keyboard attached to it, which forces really? you to use it in this particular slightly odd aspect ratio. So oh, that's a weird thought. I know. And now, and then the next thing that's coming down the line, and, and, and it'll be interesting to know whether this actually is meaningful, but, you know, with the new M1 chip, with the new ARM architecture, which uh, Apple are now using on their machines, you can run iOS apps natively on the desktop. Right. Um, and they just work. It's pretty cool, actually. I mean, I've, I've been running a whole bunch of ours on there. Um, and so that's another, you know, it's another kind of different screen size. It's another different sort of intent. So it'll be interesting to see if, number one, people even download these things. But if they do, how they use them and will that affect the design of some of these products? So that put desktop back into your numbers? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's right. I mean, the other thing I think that's maybe interesting there is to look at is that what you called a second ago, ritual. You know, the idea that I've got a weekly or I've got a monthly, I'm going to sit down with my tablet and a coffee and I'm going to read this yeah. this edition. Um, I think that's an interesting way of seeing some of these things. Yeah, I see that continuing. I also, I think we we get quite hung up on tablets and how they're kind of big and heavy and clunky and expensive and, and so on. I I... I I'm really excited to see over the next few years when display technology just gets better and better and cheaper and thinner and lighter and more flexible. Yeah. You know, we are going to see devices which, we which we're not really thinking about right now, which for my money will make tablets, you know, um, ubiquitous in the way that we all thought they were going to be, but they certainly aren't yet. So do you think some of that futurology that we saw when the iPad first came out, is it actually going to come to, to come to pass? 
I think some of it will and, and a lot of it won't in the same way that when the internet was, was kind of finding its way and, and people were building websites on Flash and everything was flying around the screen because it could <laughs> and it created a, just a disgusting user experience. And I think, I think a lot of those early day apps that people put a lot of effort into to make them look beautiful were also kind of missing the point, right? Because mm -hmm. they were doing stuff just because they could. When actually, and this is why I, I, you know, this is why I love the Economist, uh, the Week, the Spectator. The the user experience is very simple. It's not trying to do anything clever. It's just trying to deliver content in the best possible way. So that I think, I think that's where we're going to get to is that we'll end up with, you know, editorial work. It sounds very boring, but you know, editorial <laughs> workflows which are tenable or sustainable creating content which is you know which is the best reading experience on the given device and yes of course for for consumer titles that will mean more use of video and 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 actually tortoise is a really good example here so tortoise you know a slow news media brand mm -hmm. who if you look at the product itself mm -hmm. if you look at the journalism they do quite a lot of data journalism driven by, you know, infographics and, and really beautiful content, actually. And they, I guess they, they have the luxury of not having to churn out hundreds of stories a day. It means that they can really focus on creating fantastic content. So they're a good example of someone who's, you know, they're, they're doing some of those things that we saw in the early days of these iPad editions, but they're doing it for the right reasons. You know, they're creating infographics which help tell the story rather than having stuff flying around the screen to make it look fancy. So yes, I do, I, I think there'll be, you know, we'll just hit a, a, the right balance of simplicity, but then, you know, I, I, enough interactivity that will actually help tell the story. I think one of the things that was interesting in the survey, or, or in your report, sorry, was the sentiment analysis that you did. And the idea that people are actually quite bullish about digital publishing, which is great. Yes. Um, but it seems to be focused at the company level. So they're bullish about what they're doing, but a little bit less so at the industry level. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, that was interesting, wasn't it? I think part of that is the whole, you know, 73% um, of US drivers consider them better than average. It's that kind of, you know... <laughs> I actually had, I, I, I had to Google that because I wanted to check that that's not just a complete made up statistic, but that is the, the AAA um, did that analysis. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think also maybe, you know, I, I guess the publishers that we work with are, a lot of them are quite big, well-funded organizations. Um, so, you know, if you ask the Wall Street Journal how... Um, confident they are about the future of course they're going to be confident right they're they're a, they're a machine <laughs> yeah. um, and and so I think maybe maybe part of that was just that you you know the level of the people who I was talking to I think are sitting in businesses where yeah they genuinely believe they've got a plan and what was interesting was I think it was the next question where we asked about optimism their optimism but then we asked about you know um, the degree to which they believe they're set up in order to meet the challenges that are that are facing them right now. And that was an interesting one because I think a lot of people thought, yeah, we're set up to meet these challenges. And a lot thought, well, at least we now know what the challenges are. We've now got to sort ourselves out in order to meet those challenges. So I think 
everybody felt like, well, at least we know what we're up against now. Mm. Some felt, yeah, we're already geared up, ready to kind of tackle these challenges, which, you know, are the usual ones. So decline in ad revenue, decline in news trade revenue, and a massive focus on growing subscriptions, acquisitions, and retaining subscriptions. Um, but yeah, so I think there was a pretty, pretty consistent optimism about the future. Yeah, that's true. The reader revenue thing is obviously huge. Yeah. Right across the board. Um, is Do you think subscriptions driven in the app space is is a big deal for these guys? You know, we have so much from like the likes of the New York Times or whatever, digital subscriptions driven through a web interface, but apps surely should, there's a, there's a subscription opportunity there. Yeah, and, and actually New York Times was an interesting one, right? Because the discussion there, when Mark Thompson did his exit interview with McKinsey, actually he talked about this, where he turned, and this is this, these are his words, he turned the New York Times into an organization which is app first, website second, print third. He completely switched. I think they're almost unique in that respect. In other words, all of the other news media I speak to and we work with are web first, web or print first, app second, print third. Um, so that was that's fascinating that he sees the app as the thing driving their product strategy. I think in general, um, apps are terrible for acquisition. It's yeah. it's it's just not their job, right? So apps, if you think of the pyramid of your your readership, where at the bottom, like the big base is is is, is social, and then you've got your website, and then you've got kind of your paying subscribers, and then you've got your members at the very tip of the pyramid. Apps are really good at the tip of the pyramid or the top two tiers. So, so as a consequence, they're they're yes, they're terrible at acquisition, but they they really are the basis for retention. So, so what we tend to find is you get your audience through social or through your web presence. You then encourage them to download an app, and then it's the app that you engage with them on a daily basis because that's the thing that's it's on the home screen. It's one tap away. It's you know. It's so once you've got them to download it, it's so low friction. We have this debate a lot actually about how you know how sophisticated should um, subscriber journeys be within the app. And part of it is is just dictated by Apple and Google, right? There are certain things they just simply won't let you do. Um, and part of it is down to well, look, if someone's already downloaded the app chances are they probably are a subscriber. And if they're not, I guess, yes, you've got to make it super easy for them to become a subscriber without, you know, deleting the app and buggering off for good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it's kind of, it's a bit of a moving feast at the moment, actually. And Apple are helping by, you know, as you, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you guys commented on, actually, you know, them making their uh, App Store terms better for publishers, yeah. so reducing the the 30, 30% down to 15%, 15. and doing a whole bunch of other things in the app store. That definitely helps. From a product development point of view, is that about <laughs> making it as seamless as possible to move between a sort of subscription setup on a website into the app? Yeah. I mean, is, that, is that difficult? It's quite, it's actually quite easy. And, the, and, and, and you can, the technology's been around for a while now to do it in in almost every direction. So, so I guess the most the the, the simplest customer journey is, and and the most common is they've already you know a, a reader's already um, registered 
through the website because all social media takes you to the website. You know, all, basically, there's still this world where all roads lead to the website in the first <laughs> instance. So they sign up there. And then in our apps, we, we simply give the option, right? So if you download, let's say, the Mail Plus app right now, you can, you can browse around the app. You can see what's going on. You can then, if you try and engage with any paid content, you just get a little um, a, a little modal that comes up, which basically says, "Hey, if you're already a subscriber, just log in here, and and you know you simply use the details which you which you already have for the website, or here are all the ways you can buy through Apple, you know, and then you've got you've got the Apple App Store terms. Now, the the flip side of that is, if someone comes into the app, let's take independent premium as an example, and they're not a, a subscriber to the independent, but they've happened to have downloaded the app." And, and you can do that in a number of ways, right? So you might have social media campaigns which deep link to content in the app. So when they try and access the content, if they've got the app, it takes them straight to the content. If they don't have the app, it takes them to the content with a smart banner prompting them to download the app. But let's say they go into the app and then they have no relationship with the independent at this point. If they buy a subscription through the app store, there's this thing called a receipt postback where with the permission of the reader, they can basically get a receipt from the app store, which they pass to the website. And you, we do this in as seamless a way as we can. Yeah. And they get a subscription to the website off the back of the subscription that they bought from Apple. So you can tie it all up quite nicely. Because Apple are so cagey about user data, it's a little bit of a journey because you've got to say, hey, do you mind if we pass this data on to the independent so that they can honor your subscription? But it's as seamless as it can be, I guess. But yeah, these these are things that, again, are evolving. So we work with a bunch of different subs platforms. Piano is probably our closest relationship. Uh, also Zephyr. Um, but, you know, we're constantly kind of working with those guys to see, to try to work out, right? So it's kind of the crux of your question is where is the primary user journey for a subscription? Again, at the moment, it's a website, but we are starting to see it leach into the app as well. Just, is that the major focus for product development at the moment? Is that what publishers are asking about or is there anything else going on? I, I guess membership and mm -hmm. all the things that that entail are at the heart of the most of the conversations we're having right now. So that's everything from how you acquire members, how you sign them up, and then, and then encouragingly, how you give them stuff that's valuable enough to warrant that membership. In other words, how do you go beyond just a traditional, here's some content sort of product. So that's where a lot of our, I think our product development that we're doing in partnership with, with publishers is going. So it's about, you know, integrating audio content. Um, so the, the audio player in our, in our platform is getting exercise a lot right now. Um, which is fantastic, you know, because again, it's the sort of thing that digital was made for. Yeah. So yeah, so I think a lot of the product development we're doing right now is about creating a better user experience and a better content experience. And is that all tied into, I mean, ultimately retention? When you've got someone paying and you give them extra, you keep them longer, is that the, is that the basic idea? Yes, it is. Yeah, for sure. And again, I think tortoises are a great example of this. They, they, you know, they've got they've got so many strands to to their user engagement strategy. So once you're a member of Tortoise, you're getting a daily newsletter uh, or a daily email, sorry, 
which gives you a couple of stories and then teases stories that are you know that you can read fully in the app it's also that that newsletter is also surfacing events so then you've got then the second yeah. thread of engagement which is the events the thinkings which are happening you know at least four days a week which started as physical events you would go to the newsroom you'd sit in the newsroom you'd be part of the journalistic process but of course you know once we went into lockdown back in march last year those events turned into um virtual events and we went from having 80 people in the room to sometimes 2000 people in the room wow. and they are fantastic so, so those events are a brilliant funny enough not just a retention tool but also acquisition tool because if you want to come to a think in then you need to buy a ticket if you buy a ticket you get a free membership for a certain period of time so you know they're using these live events as a way to acquire people and bring them into the membership but then obviously yes of course as a retention tool and and what tortoise have done so well is when they talk about membership it it's meaningful it's not just a subscription but membership's a cooler word so we'll just call it a membership i mean it really is a membership tortoise members really feel like they're part of something not that they're just subscribing to something because they can take part they can take part yeah. in the events they can talk directly to the editorial team to give feedback there is a members editor you know the whole thing was built from the ground up with the member at the heart of the proposition and then they built the proposition around that and it's absolutely it shows in the product do you think the app actually makes that proposition more real? You know the idea that I'm a member, I've got an app, it's on my phone, it's with me all the time. So I really can participate whenever I feel like participating. Yes, I think so. I do think so. I think I mean, gosh, this this you know, this constant debate about the difference between mobile web and apps and so on. And I think it it, it all boils down to the the relationship you have with the brand or let's say the app if your relationship with the brand is that you you know you have a casual little kind of dip in and out once a month or whatever sort of setup then apps don't make sense at all but if in but if this is something that you're going to engage with on a daily basis or even a weekly basis then then yes i think having an app as part of the the strategy makes so much sense because as you say it's it's one tap away it's sitting there on the home screen it's front of mind even if you're taking away the tiniest bit of friction it makes sense i mean you know instagram facebook twitter are apps for a good reason you know um and 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 i think and i think that's that that's the 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 trick for a publisher is how do you become so important in your readers mind that they they're willing to make the effort to download this thing onto their device because once they've done that that's you've you've got over that big first hurdle then it's just a case of giving them something interesting enough to keep them coming back um and that's why i think the weeklies and the dailies do so well because they've got that excuse to engage on a much more regular basis and so it's yeah. easier to maintain that momentum of engagement so i think what possibly my favorite section in the whole report <laughs> There's this little whimsical section you've got towards the end. <laughs> yes. If you could, if you could turn back time, if you could snap your fingers and turn back time, yeah. What would you change? Yeah. What were some of your favourite responses to that question? Yeah, I liked. It. Do you know what it, it? It it was a question we threw in at the end. Think, oh, that would be a fun question, and it was the most telling question. I think everybody enjoyed having a little think. Some people said, "Oh, look, can I, 
Can I think about that and come back to you? And, you know, they'd send me an email like a couple of days later. I think for me, there were two key themes which which really um, struck me. The first, and I'll read it verbatim, was I'd go back 10 years and stop the pursuit of scale for the sake of scale and help consumers understand the true value of high quality journalism. And I think, you know, I go back 10 years to being at News International and sitting in titles meetings, actually probably 13 years ago, and it was all about monthly uniques. It was all about scale. Um, and then, you know, 12 years ago, I guess it was, we, we switched and we put a paywall in front of the Times. And we went from 25 million monthly uniques to zero and had to build that business up again from nothing. And, you know, I think it's fair to say you'd look back and on that decision now and say that was a pretty good decision because the Times is is profitable like it's never been. And and that was specific, specifically dealing with that problem of chasing scale for the sake of scale rather than helping consumers understand the true value of high-quality journalism. So I love that sentiment. And that actually, that didn't come from someone at News International. Um, I think that's a sentiment that's shared across most of the people we spoke to. Um, and then the other one, which was, I think, more... <laughs> I think this is more of a kind of vain wish, uh, which was I'd reduce the dominance of the big platforms because I think, you know, I think that's one of those ones where I, it's it, it's very hard to do that. But I think, there, again, there was a lot of sentiment around we're kind of at the mercy of these guys. And those things are kind of tied together, aren't they? The idea that scale was driven by the platforms. Yes. People jumped on that. It was this hope that the platforms would fund everything. And yes. They just didn't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, the whole ad, I guess we haven't we haven't talked about advertising thus far. And funny enough, we we don't talk a lot about advertising in, 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 in our little world. It's interesting how most of the conversations we have are around subscriber revenue, even though, of course, mm. we support advertising on the platform. But I guess because we're constantly playing at the top of that pyramid, we tend to have much more conversations around paid content and reader revenue than we do around ad revenue, which is good. Kind of, feel, <laughs> I feel like we're in the right place, particularly as you know the way the the the, in, the industry is going right now. Do you think advertising on, particularly on the app side of things, is is got any kind of future? Well, I think it depends on the, the model. I think sponsorship absolutely does. So I think if you're if you're selling a deeply engaged, loyal, valuable audience to a to a sponsor, I think that's a that's a, 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 a real valuable proposition. I think what doesn't work in apps is this, you know, the kind of the programmatic bottom feeding yeah. sort of um, <laughs> sort of model because you just the, the, the audience isn't big enough i think kind of display to a certain degree but sponsorship to a large degree make make a lot of sense on these platforms so if we gave you a wish what would you change <laughs> oh god now you've got me <laughs> i think what i would change is i would i would change the way boards view investment in digital and that they have a longer term view. Um, I think back at the music industry, right? When, so I used to work at EMI and, and there was a point in time where digital was 2% of the revenue uh, coming into the business. Um, and that was back in 2002. 
and we and I in particular was responsible for a change program which was about digitizing the supply chain and trying to you know make the company a, a, a kind of pure digital play and the amount of resistance we got because digital is only two percent of revenue was just remarkable and it ended up meaning that it took you know eight years longer than it should have done to turn in this case EMI into a pure digital business and I, I kind of feel the same way about digital in publishing over the last few years I mean clearly that's it's it's not the case right now but I think there are still remnants of old school models where you get a product out and if it doesn't pay for itself within three months then you shutter it and I and and so yeah I guess my wish would be to look at digital products as different rather than a byproduct of, of some other product it's different it's got different characteristics it needs to be thought of as its own thing and products should be developed with that in mind. So that would be my wish is, is to have a more kind of digital first mindset, which sounds like something that we were probably saying eight years ago, but I still yeah, think it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's still the case. I think that's what, what people need to do. Do you think what we've been through with the pandemic and uh, this, this kind of shift to, to digital, virtual events, homeworking, do you think that'll change things? I mean, it certainly looks like it changed things over the course of last year um, in that there was, an, there was a significant shift upwards uh, in terms of subscriber numbers and, and reader revenue. Funnily enough, we're just, I'm just running the report. I've got one of the team running the report right now to take us up to December because what we saw was that so-called COVID bump, which hit in kind of February, March. Actually, it dipped a little bit in, in over the course of the summer, but it, it came back again. And so that that increase so far is holding. I mean, okay, I guess we're still in lockdown, so I'm, I'm not quite sure what, what that says, apart from at least it wasn't a blip that disappeared. No. So we're maintaining it now. My sense is, yes, I think I think it's not just, you know, the the situation the world finds itself in. I think it's also just that publishers over the last year, I mean, I, and I, I can specifically pinpoint customers of ours who really do have a renewed energy in driving subscriber revenue and building products that will enable that. So I definitely see a shift. I see that shift having started a year ago. I'm not sure the shift was because of... <laughs> Yeah. COVID. But well, I guess there is that that element of the shift from print to digital. And, and certainly a number of the news media companies we've been working with have accelerated their plans of, you know, what was a, well, we'll let print just kind of slowly uh, do its thing naturally, and we'll let digital take over to right now, okay, now the cost to distribute is too high, we simply want to do a you know do a wholesale switch to digital so we're definitely seeing that which clearly has a huge impact yeah that idea of acceleration i think is uh, is really interesting and i guess when you do your next state of the digital publishing market report we'll see a lot more of that yeah i'm i'm, I'm fascinated to to see where we yeah where we get to a year from now and like i said i mean we're going to track there's just a couple of numbers that we're going to track i think over the course of the year because it is just interesting to see it monthly but yeah what, what we're going to try and do for next year is have a lot more data uh so i'd, I'd say that the 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 emphasis on this year's report was on the interviews funnily enough i think next year it'll be more of a, a balance because we will have much more data now set up to capture it 
Excellent. Well, we're looking forward to that. Um, thank you so much, Johnny. Thanks for taking the time to talk us through this. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, uh, the report is fascinating. This has been a Media Voices Conversation episode in partnership with PubPick to download the State of the Digital Publishing Market Report and to find out more about the PubPick platform, go to pubpick.com. Thank you all. Stay safe.